0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today is believed to be a deadline for Maui Mayor Mike Victorino to decide what to do about vacation rentals on Molokai. The issue of whether Maui should phase out short-term rentals in the whole county will be the subject of a 3 p.m. public meeting on Maui on Friday. We talked to Maui's Planning Director Michelle McLean about where the county is on its efforts to curb illegal runaway rentals.
1: We have two kinds of permits for short-term rental homes or bed-and-breakfast homes. And those are single-family homes. The main difference between the two is that a bed-and-breakfast is owned and operated by somebody who lives on the property and runs the accommodation. And a short-term rental home does not have an owner-operator on site. And we have 150 permitted bed-and-breakfasts, and we have 226 permitted short-term rental homes. And the feedback that we're getting from the community is that they don't mind and are even happy with bed and breakfast because there's a long-term residential presence on the property, but that they're not very happy with short-term rental homes because they don't know who their neighbors are anymore. And so right now we're just exploring whether to phase out those particular operations. And then in addition to our hotels, we have roughly 6,700 apartment condo units that can lawfully do short-term rental. And not all of them do, but many of them we have quite a variety of visitor accommodations. And right now we're just exploring whether to phase out short-term rental homes. And we have been doing, and this is just within my my department, We've met with a handful of interest groups. We met with the Maui Vacation Rental Association, the Realtors Association of Maui, the Hotel and Lodging Association. So we're meeting with, with stakeholder groups, and then on this Friday at three o'clock, we're having just a public meeting for anybody else who wants to come in and talk about the issue. Uh, I should add that since we met with the Realtors Association and the Vacation Rental Association, We have been bombarded with emails from people expressing their opinion on this, most of them against the idea of phasing these out. Many are asking about the condo properties, and we are not talking about uh, the condo properties right now. We're just talking about the
0: short-term rental homes. So I can see that there are people who are renting out these properties, and and it is a, a help for income, but it is a concern for some of the neighbors.
1: Yes, it is, and certainly we understand that this is a different kind of visitor experience than people can have in hotels, but we're thinking more about our community and our residents, and I can understand the feeling of not wanting to have a vacation rental next to you. You don't know who is going to be there on any given day, and even if they're quiet and respectful you still don't know who your neighbor is. We, we also believe that they contribute to the higher property values that we're seeing certainly on Maui and other places in the state, that they contribute to the, to the high cost of housing. And some of these homes did used to be in long-term rental. We've heard many examples of owners choosing to go to short-term rental because they can make a lot more money.
2: What can
0: you tell us about the enforcement actions that, that you folks have taken? You know, what are the challenges?
1: There are a lot of challenges to enforcing. Uh, our laws uh, do provide that advertising is evidence of operation. So the way that we enforce is predominantly by researching ads. And with all of the different hosting platforms out there now, that keeps us very busy. We, in fact, have hired a contractor who we've had with us for well over a year now to help us identify ads because any operation will advertise on multiple platforms and they're very sneaky with how they advertise. They don't show exterior photos of their property. They can even, if they have their own website, they can block Hawaii IP addresses from accessing it. They will advertise on the weekends and the evenings when they know that our staff isn't working. And so by having this mainland contractor to help us, they can get over those obstacles and uh, help us track ads. On any given, at any given moment, there are between 20 and 30,000 ads for vacation rentals on Maui. And so those have to get screened for all of the lawful ones, whether they have permits or whether they're in these condos that are allowed to do the activity. And so diluting those down, it dilutes it down to just a few hundred potentially unlawful properties. And that's a much more manageable number. But we do, we have had successes. Last calendar year, we issued... 180 notices of warning, 80 notices of violation, and those come along with fines. We collected about $50,000 in fines in 2019 and have another roughly $300,000 in fines pending because those violations have been appealed. So we have had many successes in enforcement, but it's an ongoing challenge. It's kind of like that game whack-a-mole where we'll find an ad and we'll cite the owner And then that ad goes down, but then another ad for another operation pops up somewhere else.
0: Now, in talking with Kauai's planning director, we understand that some of the stiff penalties has acted as a deterrent.
1: I think so. Uh, Maui County had a charter amendment in the 2018 election to increase our initial fines from $1,000 per day to $20,000 per day and our daily fines from $1,000 per day to $10,000 per day. And even though that charter amendment passed in 2018, we also had to amend our county code and we had to amend our departmental administrative rules. So it took a while before we could start imposing those but I, I do believe that it has served as a deterrent. The attitude that, oh, well, we'll just chance this until we get caught, and if we get caught, it's $1,000. Well, now if you get caught, it's $20,000.
0: And how are you looking at the cases where there's just willful disregard for the laws? It, they just don't care.
1: When we do our enforcement, after we issue a notice of violation and levy fines, if we don't find compliance, then we turn it over to our corporation counsel. And that goes to the litigation section, and they will first send a demand letter to the operator. And then if that doesn't succeed, then they will uh, take court action. So we have had to do that on rare occasion. Usually once they get the demand letter, uh, they'll, they'll start cooperating.
0: Talk about the rules that you have in place that deal with bed and breakfast permits, because you have something in there if I recall right, that says if you have a notice of violation that you're preempted from applying for additional permits for a certain time, right?
1: Right, right. For bed and breakfast, it would be a two-year ban, and for short-term rental homes, it's a five-year ban. And we do keep a ban list of folks who uh, have fallen under those provisions, and we have, I believe it, just over 600 individuals on our ban list. Wow. So that that's reflective of the enforcement efforts that we've done, because once we issue those notices, even if we achieve compliance and they stop advertising and operating, they also get added on the ban list.
0: And you have the additional challenge of dealing with rentals on uh, Molokai and Lanai, right? Yes, yes.
1: And uh, actually on Molokai, we don't have any permitted bed and breakfast We do have 17 permitted short-term rental homes, uh, but the county council has just passed a bill to phase those out by the end of this calendar year. So they, uh, they would be able to operate and even get extensions, but by the end of December, they would have to stop altogether.
0: Yeah, from my understanding is that the majority of those are out-of-state Owners, yes, and actually, with the 226
1: total short-term rental homes that we have countywide, roughly 50% of those are not date residents.
0: Wow, so that's pretty dramatic.
1: Yeah, and that's that's part of the reason that we are looking at phasing out the ones on Maui. Now, the bill that the council just passed for Molokai would phase them out by the end of this year, but we would look at a much longer phase-out period knowing that a lot of visitors make their reservations way in advance. Um, We would want operators to be able to honor existing reservations. So we would look at a longer phase-out period if we do go forward. And then what about the situation with Lanai? On Lanai, uh, the council member from Lanai, Ricky Hokama, has recently drafted a bill uh, calling for a moratorium on issuing new bed and breakfast and short-term rental home permits. I don't believe that's been introduced yet, but he did send out a press release about that, has sent a bill to us for review. We haven't had a chance to review it yet, but just coincidentally, we have been spending some time with the Lanai Planning Commission to look at revisions to the short-term rental home ordinance uh, that they're looking for. In all of the regions on Maui, there are caps for the member of B&B and short-term rental homes that can be issued. The Lanai doesn't have a cap. So the Lanai Planning Commission is looking at establishing a cap and maybe making some other revisions.
0: I guess I worry about Lanai just because I know with Larry Ellison taking over and he's revamped those hotels, they're, you know, they're pretty pricey. And even mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Hotel Lanai, I think, is, is is up there now. Yeah,
1: you know, when we go over for Planning Commission meetings, we have to stay overnight too. And I I just saw some of the paperwork for the last time we stayed there and Hotel and I is now over three hundred dollars. And I have asked our staff to look into staying in a permitted short term rental home <laughs> the next time they go because that's just a lot of money. So I don't I don't know that Councilmember Hokama is interested in phasing them out, but I think he does want to look at other restrictions that might be appropriate for lanai that aren't in the law right now, because the the community there knows that people come over for sports competitions or to visit family or to go hunting. That they they do want to have alternatives,
0: right? And and I can see how that would be a problem. And particularly, let's say in your case, like I said, you're just trying to do your job as public servants and reach out to that community. And if you're having difficulty booking a reasonable accommodation there, what do you do? Right, right. Well,
1: I'm certainly insistent that we stay in a, in a place that has permits because uh, we're not going to be contributing to the, to the illegal operations. And We have been working with the Lanai Planning Commission. When I talk about potentially phasing out short-term rental homes uh, altogether, At the same time, we're looking at possibly broadening what a bed and breakfast home is so that there would be some local relationship to the operation, because we do know of some people, Maui residents, who own and live on their property and also own the property next door, they have to get a short-term rental home permit for the property next door, but maybe that could be turned into a and b instead. Because they live there, they're still overseeing the operation.
0: A very complicated issue, and uh, hats <laughs> off to you for for trying different things, because it's not easy.
1: No, it isn't. And so I wanted to note that one of the reasons we're proposing this, besides the uh, the contribution that these operations make to uh, higher housing costs and the impact to the community is when the bill was adopted in 2012 to create this permit process, it was expected that all of these operations would come into compliance. And the reality is that there are still many that have not. So that was the original goal, but we really haven't met that goal. And we're still having to fight all of these illegal operations. And the illegal operators can... Hide among the lawful ones because they'll put a permit number on their ad that in fact isn't their permit at all it's someone else's permit that original goal wasn't wasn't achieved and when that process was created the hotel industry was very supportive of it with the idea that a rising tide lifts all ships but that climate has changed and it is having an impact on the hotel industry and they're not so supportive anymore. And if we were to see an economic downturn, it's going to be impactful to the hotels, which employ so many more people. And we want to make sure that our hotel industry is, is protected.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, a big week for you folks there on Maui. And we'll just see how this all plays out. Yes, we will. <laughs> We have been talking with Michelle McLean, Planning Director for Maui County, about enforcement efforts on the Valley Isle. For information about the Friday community meeting, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. (laughs) ¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶ in today's Backyard Quiz, we look back on a bygone political movement that gained prominence during the early days of territorial Hawaii. Soon after the annexation of Hawaii by the United States, many Native Hawaiians worried that neither the Democratic nor Republican parties would properly represent their interests. Thus, the Hawaiian Home Rule Party was formed. In the Home Rule Party's first election, it beat out the ruling Republican Party for a majority in the Territorial Senate. While the party initially enjoyed success due to the determination of founder Robert Wilcox and additional support from Prince Jonah Kuhio, the party earned few allies across the political aisle and was the near constant victim of bad press by newspapers opposed to it. While the Hawaiian Home Rule Party is no longer active today, you can still find a street named after it. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us where on Oahu you can find Home Rule Street? Call 941 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawai'i's people and places. Locations, welcome home.
0: keep hearing how our risk remains low for COVID-19 here in the islands, and so far, there is no confirmed case in Hawaii. So why are we starting to see the cancellation of big events in the islands? HPR's Ryan Finnerty joins us live in our studio. Good morning.
4: Hey, Catherine. Hey, yeah, and that's right. We are seeing some pretty major public events either be postponed or canceled altogether Uh, The Honolulu Festival just announced that they were going to be canceling the 2020 event. Uh, The Pacific Festival of Arts and Culture, which is uh, kind of described as the Olympics of the Pacific. It happens once every four years in a different uh, region of the Pacific, uh, which was supposed to be held in Hawaii this year, has been postponed a year. Um, It will be coming back, but that's a pretty substantial event, 28 countries were supposed to participate. Um, And pop star Mariah Carey has canceled her March concert at the Blaisdell Arena, citing the coronavirus. She will be back in November for a Christmas show for fans. So not all bad news there. Um, we were really starting to see the not necessarily the health effects of this virus, but the economic effects, as you said, uh, pop up across the state. Um, this, the spread of COVID-19 began in Wuhan, China. And one of the first places in Hawaii to really feel the effects was in Honolulu's Chinatown. Um, Chulan Schubert Kwok is the president of the Chinatown Business and Community Association. And I spoke with her yesterday and she said that foot traffic to merchants is down 30 to 50 percent. That echoes what we heard from Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell a few weeks ago. He went to Chinatown and tried to kind of appeal to residents to not stop shopping there, that it was safe. Um, that doesn't appear to have been very successful. Uh, Chulan also said that restaurants, which are a major economic driver in that neighborhood, are also feeling the pain. Um, She said four or five major association events have canceled that were scheduled for venues there. And the daily traffic to restaurants is also down. Um, And she said that many business owners in Chinatown are already starting to worry about how they're going to make the rent in the next month or two for their commercial spaces, which is pretty expensive. Um, and she's calling on landlords to be understanding and for lawmakers to provide some kind of help.
3: I think it's very important that landlords be a little flexible in this time. People are struggling already. If they're good paying tenants, the landlord should cut them some slack. And I think also our, our legislature should enact a, a law That also gives some credit uh, of this financial and uh, health crisis so that folks can write off some of the losses in order to keep our community together. Because without these businesses in Chinatown, we would not have a community.
4: And we just saw yesterday uh, the State House of Representatives approved the creation of a commission that would look at some of these economic impacts of the virus um, and and what action should be taken by public officials to mitigate it. Um, and Chulan went on to point out that it's maybe easy for people to write off this off as a Chinatown problem right now and avoid the area, um, even though there is you know. Uh, official health uh, directive to do so. But she pointed out that um, other neighborhoods on Oahu and elsewhere in Hawaii will likely feel this same pain um, if and when this virus does reach Hawaii and people stop uh, stop shopping or stop going out, stop visiting public places. Um, and so she kind of encouraged people to think about that, that this is not just a Chinatown problem, that it is something that could uh, spread beyond t- the, that neighborhood and there's definitely potential for that. Um, we're seeing uh, visitor numbers are already starting to be impacted by the global spread of the virus. International numbers are way down according to state statistics. Um, the the data kind of bounces around a lot from day to day, but it, anywhere from, Uh, 11 percent declines to uh, upwards of 20 percent depending on which days you look at and and that reflects a broader national trend the US Travel Association uh, industry group for the the domestic travel economy projects that international travel to the US will drop 6 percent over the next three months and if that bears out it would Work out to losses worth almost four billion dollars nationally to the travel industry. Um, Roger Dow is the CEO of the Travel Association, and I spoke with him yesterday, and he said that recovering from that kind of decline can take a long time.
5: It usually takes about a year to recover. And that's one of the most important things we can do: is recover quickly. These these things don't last a long time. In fact, we're getting all sorts of readings from China that uh, the new cases are going down dramatically starbucks is open factories are starting to open again travel is going up every day from china uh so we're getting all sorts of reports there but it takes a long time to recover so the most important thing we can do as an industry is figure out how to shorten that time and get people traveling to the u.s more quickly uh than they have in previous times uh we don't that's not good if this if this lasts a year to 15 months
4: So it's really important to note that while international travelers to Hawaii, which is what he was talking about there, and to the U.S. in general, are a very significant piece of the economic pie locally, they're not the most important. Domestic travelers from the U.S., which are split by most statisticians into East and West U.S., um, are the two most important groups. They make up two-thirds of visitor arrivals and visitor spending. Japanese visitors are the third biggest group in terms of spending and arrivals, and they're, they're already uh, declining pretty markedly. So far, domestic travel hasn't been impacted, and so that's kind of the most important group uh, in terms of Hawaii's visitor industry. But now we're seeing cases of COVID-19 pop up around the US, and we're seeing deaths now, too, in different, different cities. So uh, that impact may be over the horizon still.
0: Yes, I did talk to a lawmaker last night who expressed some concern because there were all those deaths in Washington state. Uh, there were some new cases that were detected in California. And he was saying, you know, those are two big states where we get a lot of visitors. And he's just worried about the impact. And, you know, we are into the I think the halfway point of the legislature. Uh, you know, uh, House Speaker Scott Psyche has that task force that's looking at this, but it's going to affect the bottom line. You've got to have a contingency plan in case we don't get enough uh, money into our tax coffers to, to you know sustain the programs that we want to fund.
4: Yeah, I spoke with uh, Carl Bonham, University of Hawaii economist, just before we came on the show, actually, and i uh, will be doing a story on that tomorrow. But he said the uh, uh, state's finances are uh, as far as this virus concerned, um it, it's not going to create a major short-term impact because a, a lot of state tax revenue comes from income taxes, and people are still going to keep paying those even if there's a hit to the general excise of the transient accommodation taxes. So he said the the real impact to the state's finances would probably not be seen until next year, sometime, the fiscal year. as he said, we're about seven months into the f- state's fiscal year. Uh, and so likely the the big impact to state tax revenue is not going to be seen until next year, depending on uh, how this situation plays out. It all depends on how long this virus uh, kind of kicks around for, how quickly there is a recovery, as we heard Roger Dow mention. Um, so there's just a lot of unknowns in that. We should potentially get a little bit more information next week. The state's Council on Revenues, which is the body that makes predictions of tax revenue coming into the state is set to meet next week. Um, and they'll be preparing a report kind of looking at that. And that will give lawmakers a better idea. The lawmakers I've spoken with so far are cautiously optimistic that they're, it's not going to derail any of the major initiatives, particularly some of those cost of living uh, measures that were being pushed by the governor and, and leaders in the House and Senate. So uh, it's still really too early to say what the the impact will be to the state's coffers, but the broader economy, there's definitely some warning signs. We're already in a period of slow growth, low growth, uh, slow job growth, and uh, big headwinds for our our state's largest industry. And I think people are just saying
0: that, yeah, if we do get impacted, that any recovery will be quick. Thanks so much, Ryan. We have been talking with HBR's Ryan Finnerty about the impact COVID-19 is having on our economy.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European and American works including Arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. When Chris Orris was in his 30s, he got some shocking news. The doctor just looked at me and he said, you have less than two years to live. He was born on a military base. Where toxic chemical had seeped into the drinking water. You have a heart defect, and we can't believe you're still alive. And that chemical is still there. On the next reveal. This evening at seven, following Bike Marks Cafe.
0: Today's reality check takes a deep dive into an institution of higher education. Honolulu Civil Beat's business reporter Stuart Yerton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So the college we're talking about is Hawaii Pacific University.
6: That's right. Um, so uh, Hawaii Pacific University is going through some really big changes now, uh, really transforming itself, and uh, in a way it, it really has to.
0: Well, you know, I think a lot of folks know Hawaii Pacific University, HPU. You know, they, they have right. been running commercials about how they're, they've got such a diverse Uh, student body, you know, they've got some uh, solid programs with nursing, marine science, but uh, uh, they've got some big challenges.
6: Right. So, you know, we, we really looked at the business side of this and uh, the key issues are this: one, it's a it's a co- it's a teaching college, it's a teaching university, um, not a big research university, so they don't have a lot of grants coming in to help support everything. The big um, source of revenue is from tuition and fees, but they've had declining student enrollment over the years, uh, really sharply. We have graphics that show this from maybe ten thousand to roughly five thousand in the past decade. Uh, that means less money. Uh, less revenue. Uh, They've had to sort of let uh, faculty go through attrition. So the faculty has declined a lot too. And on top of all that, they're consolidating and moving everything downtown or the edge of downtown along Ala Moana uh, to new spaces. They've taken over uh, Aloha Tower marketplace and they've moved a bunch of things into Uh, Restaurant Row or Waterfront Plaza as it's more formally known and um, one of the other buildings downtown
0: right yeah So again
6: this is costly
0: and they moved from um, their offices on Fort Street Mall because of you know safety issues I think Uh, but they also did sell I believe the property that they have on the Windward side right
6: that's right so they sold that the Hawaii Loa campus and they're moving everything over here to this side of the island. Now, I think for the students, it can be uh, uh, maybe a better experience. They don't have to go all the way over to the other side of the island. Some of them live there as well. But again, it, it's expensive. It's costing a lot of money to move everything here and consolidate here.
0: So uh, what, are they, what are they doing to kind of adjust to this new reality of you know, shrinking enrollments?
6: Yeah, that's a really good question. So they have a few things. They have some new programs, uh, some new engineering programs uh, that seems to be attracting students. They're also doing things to try to attract more local students. They have a really interesting program, for instance, with some of the private schools. Uh, One of them is Mary Knoll School, where a student can basically earn an associate's degree while they're in college, while they're in high school. Um, come out of high school with, a, with an associate's degree and really only have to do two years of college at HPU um, afterward. So they're, they're doing that kind of thing to try to bump up enrollment. It seems to be getting some traction, but, again, we have to see.
0: Now, I know there have been stories about how uh, two longtime tenants, Gordon Biersch and, uh, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of the other one, uh, that they just uh, pulled out.
6: Right. So, this is an issue. Um, they do rely on uh, revenue from renting out Aloha Tower Marketplace, that whole uh, mall down there. Uh, and uh, Gordon Bierce moved out. Hooters was the other tenant that moved out. The president, uh, uh, Gotanda, uh, Mr. Gotanda, says that they have another tenant. Um, Uh, that's interested, or tenants that are interested in those spaces. And so uh, we'll see. They do need to fill those and generate revenue. Um, It's not a huge amount of money, but every little bit helps.
0: Right, because uh, it's a little tricky uh, location. I know they've got Barnes & Noble there. I was excited because, you know, um, I like bookstores. But when I went down there, uh, I mean, that's really just geared for the students. It's not so much, you know, general public, uh, general books.
6: Right. It's, it's, it's always been a difficult uh, space, as we've seen for years, um, to get that, get that space going. I, I don't know if having... They have dorms now for the students, so they have upward of 400 students living there. It would seem like that should help, but again, college students aren't known as people who are big spenders rolling in dough. so we'll see uh, if that really can attract... Uh, businesses or not
0: right so, I mean I'm sure the students love living down there
6: yeah they like it it's a really nice experience it's beautiful right they're right I have a beautiful lanai looking out over the ocean to the harbor there and uh, it really is a nice space um, and it's not as far as it seems to go to walk from there to restaurant Road. it's, it's only about a 10 eight minute walk something like that well so it's pretty it it seems like a nice experience from talking to the students.
0: Right. Well, we'll have to see how uh, uh, how uh, they can um, crack the nut of uh, you know paying for their faculty and and uh, and the upkeep of that area. But thanks so much, Stuart.
6: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. To read his story on this issue, visit cibulbey dot org. This week we've been talking about how the different counties in the state are handling the issue of short-term vacation rentals we got this in our email thanks so much for addressing this topic we have years worth of video of sports teams arriving in passenger vans catering vehicles full tahitian dance troops with speakers booming drumming through the neighborhood wedding parties with pa systems and djs full production of music videos all next door in our residential neighborhood. Granted, this is not a typical vacation rental with a family from afar. Our neighbors own multiple structures and have taken down their online advertising to our knowledge, yet it's business as usual in our neighborhood on the windward side. So many calls and letters to everyone we can think of, and now we are told that only if inspectors catch them in the act can anything be done. The bachelor parties are not held Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. We were so hopeful about the new law. And still our kid has to go to school and we have to work after frequent sleep disturbance due to late night arrivals of those on different time zones who think jumping in a pool outside my child's bedroom at 1 a.m. is a great idea. Thanks for discussing. This isn't working where we live. No names, please. We are still neighbors. We also got a couple of calls on our talkback line.
5: Hi, my name is John from the North Shore. I really feel our legislators let us down by not making a distinction between hosted vacation rentals and unhosted vacation rentals. There's a really huge difference between Tutu renting out a spare bedroom to try and make ends meet, and I don't think she's bothering anyone, and the opposite, which is an unhosted vacation rental used as an investment and disrupts the neighborhood, and nobody seems to want those. And the fact that they didn't make a distinction is really very disappointing. Um, You could do it easily by just requiring that you rent 50% of the home you live in or less, and you must have owned that home for three years. Seems like a simple solution to me where everybody wins. I hope we can get some legislature to take it up and get on board. Thank you very much. Aloha. My name is Paul from Haleiwa. And I wanted to remark about how the Airbnb market has affected Hawaii. You know, as a construction professional in the field, I've seen the increased black market construction that has gone on uh, as a result of people wanting to accommodate these illegal vacation rentals or profit. And I've also seen how it affects the housing market and has created a housing bubble. We've created the situation now where many local people believe that they need to do an Airbnb so that they can purchase a home and they can stay in a home. But the reality is that the price has gone up based on the income that can be achieved through illegal business. And it basically forces the people of Hawaii to not only have a regular job, but to have to engage in their illegal vacation rental so that they can manage to qualify for a loan to pay for these overinflated housing
0: prices. Hey, thanks for the feedback. Please email us at talkback at Hawaii Public Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line 792 8217.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, since 1992, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders from across the nation and around the world. Inkinen.com
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at an early political party in Hawaii's territorial days. The Hawaiian Home Rule Party emerged as a third party in the days following Hawaii's annexation and focused much of its policy on helping Native Hawaiians and underserved communities in the fledgling territory. The party's key agenda items were to establish schooling for poor Hawaiians, better serve residents of Kalaupapa, and to provide aid to victims of the 1900 Chinatown Fire. Founded originally as the Independent Home Rule Party, the Hawaiian Home Rule Party leaned toward more centrist policies and views to provide territorial citizens an alternative to the primarily Democratic and Republican discourse of the day. While the Hawaiian Home Rule Party has been gone for more than 100 years, a small tribute to the former political party exists today in the form of a small avenue in the Kalihi neighborhood of Honolulu. You can find Home Rule Street nestled right between Democrat and Republican Street. Congratulations to Michelle of Honolulu, who used to work on Home Rule Street. Thanks for submitting that uh, answer. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Just coming off Super Tuesday, we take a look at a key piece of electoral reform being used by a handful of states, state Democratic parties in Hawaii, Kansas, Alaska, and Wyoming are allowing for ranked choice voting in this year's primary contest, but it's already posed some problems for folks who voted early. Now, this move has long been hailed by advocates for electoral reform as a means to allow for a more representative vote. Maria Perez is with the D.C.-based group Voter Education for Democracy in Action. She was in town working with the Democratic Party of Hawaii and spoke with the Conversations Harrison Patino about the new changes.
2: Ranked choice voting is basically a very simple change in the way that we do elections. So when you get your ballot, instead of just voting for one candidate and saying, I want this person to win and I want everybody else to lose, you get your ballot and you get to rank all the candidates that you like in order of preference. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's you get to decide, I really like this candidate, but in case they can't win, then I am saying who my backup choices are. And so benefit-wise, it really allows for voters to vote their conscience. You don't ever, with ranked choice voting, you don't ever have to go into the ballot box and into the voting booth and hold your nose and vote for a candidate that you don't really like, because if you vote for the candidate that you actually like, you might help elect the candidate that you really don't like. So there's all these like calculations, that we ask voters to make when they're voting, and and that's just not fair. People should be able to vote their conscience, really state who they like, who they like best in case they can't win, who they like next, and it allows for voters to have a more nuanced way of expressing their preferences.
3: Especially in recent political cycles, the voting choices have become really decisive, and people kind of go to the ballot, like you said, either holding their nose or saying, my candidate's not there and I'm not going to vote. Do proponents of ranked choice voting see this as a way to better increase turnout at the ballot for people who want a more representative vote?
2: Absolutely. And that happens in in, uh, several different ways with ranked choice voting that we've seen in places that have had ranked choice voting for for a few election cycles. For one thing, with ranked choice voting as a candidate, you need to have some voters second and third choice votes. It's very hard for people to win in a crowded race just with first choice votes. So candidates need to reach out beyond their base. And what that translates to in real practices, candidates and campaigns need to knock on doors of people who may have your opponent sign on their lawn. And that means that people are having conversations, campaigns are having conversations with a broad base of voters. That means voters are getting educated on what candidates are about. So there's just an engagement in the political process and in the political discourse that ranked choice voting brings to the table, which is very nice. And in places that have ranked choice voting, we usually do see a tick up in voter turnout that is gradual, right? After so many elections, we see it go up more and more. But in my hometown, where I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, when we implemented ranked choice voting, we saw a 10% voter turnout, increase in voter turnout. So that was significant.
3: So you touched upon it a little bit earlier about having a more representative vote on an individual level. What are some of the really key issues with traditional ballots that proponents of ranked choice voting think that that will solve?
2: I think that the blanket statement there is that ranked choice voting really uh, resolves the issue of having voting be a zero-sum game, right? It's us against them. It's, you know, my way or the highway kind of thinking, whereas most voters would like to have more of a consensus governance. You know, I find it very undemocratic in a crowded field if a candidate gets elected with 30% of the vote, which means 70% of the voters actually preferred somebody else, right? So And then that person doesn't really have a mandate even if they won. Most People did not like them as their favorite candidates. So with rank choice voting, you really get to build that consensus with different parts of the population, different uh, people who are supporting different platforms and come together and build something together so that the candidate that eventually gets uh, elected has the support of the majority of the
3: Now you mentioned that Santa Fe implemented this, that we've seen ranked choice voting in the main primaries. Where else have we seen ranked choice voting before and how has it worked?
2: So nationally, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts has had ranked choice voting at the municipal level for over 80 years. You know, we have Santa Fe and Las Cruces in New Mexico. We have four cities in the California Bay Area that use ranked choice voting. Minneapolis and St. Paul use it, Tacoma Park, Maryland. There's about a dozen or so municipalities that are using it right now. The state of Maine uses it for all of their state and federal elections and there's efforts in Alaska and Massachusetts and some other places to bring it to the state level. And, you know, in this case, because uh, it's primary season now, we saw that uh, Nevada had a a, a ranked ballot for their primaries last week. And then there's four states that I'm working in, uh, Hawaii, Alaska, Kansas, and Wyoming, in which the Democratic Party is uh, using a ranked ballot for their presidential primaries this year. So it's used in a variety of different ways for a variety of different types of jurisdictions, whether it's municipal, states, state or the state party kind of a thing.
3: When we see ranked choice voting being implemented across the nation, is there any correlation between whether or not voter bases with more of a progressive or conservative leaning are using ranked choice voting, or does it kind of go across party lines?
2: What we see in practice is that jurisdictions that tend to be more progressive leaning have been implementing it more, and that is basically because voter turnout seems to be more important for those people who think that way. But I want to be really clear that ranked choice voting does not help progressives or conservatives. It really is a way to have the voters find representation. So if the constituency in a place is more conservative, then you'll elect more conservative candidates. And if it's more liberal, you'll elect more liberal candidates. It's just that the person who gets elected will have a consensus of electability. So it takes away those fringe candidates, because again, you'll need second and third choice votes to actually get elected.
3: Can you speak to why Do you think Hawaii made the choice from what ballot system it had before to implementing ranked choice voting this year?
2: I think the Hawaiian Democratic Party really wanted to, as much as possible, make the primary election more accessible to voters and to, you know, increase participation, to get people excited about voting in the primary. And so the Hawaii Democratic Party requested for the DNC to approve this plan and the DNC approved it. And so that's where we're at now.
3: Hawaii has had a notoriously low voter turnout over the years. Do you think that offering alternative voting methods like ranked choice can bring more people to the ballot box?
2: I think so, absolutely, and we've seen this in different places. So not just ranked choice voting but other reforms that the party is also using right now for this primary election like increasing vote by mail and early voting and just allowing for people to vote however it's going to work for them, right? If it's by mail, if it's actually going in on election day, if it's requesting an absentee ballot, so those reforms in terms of how is it easy for people to vote in terms of ballot design and, and tabulation, you know, rank choice voting definitely helps with that because, again, it, you can vote as a voter. You know that you're voting your conscience and that you are not wasting your vote.
3: Ranked choice voting is is an interesting prospect in this one, but in future elections, is this something that would be more inclusive towards third party candidates? Is this something where, say, the Green Party or Independent Party candidates come forward? Is this a better way to represent those parties that have been forgotten a lot in, in many mainstream elections?
2: I think so, absolutely. And this is why, you know, the Green Party and, and other third parties tend to be advocates for ranked choice voting, because it allows them to be at the table, right? So one of the beauties of ranked choice voting in an election that is a majority election, right, when just one candidate is going to get elected, if you have multiple candidates running, then somebody is going to be told that you need to drop out of the race, you're spoiling the vote, you're going to split the vote. If you know, if you stay in the vote, then this other person is going to get elected, and, and we can't have that. So I find that also very undemocratic, right? If anybody wants to run for office, I think that's an incredibly brave and courageous thing to do. And we need to encourage that instead of telling people like if you're not playing with with one of these two teams, you just can't participate. So that that goes for candidates and it also goes for voters. So, you know, absolutely. I think that Ranked choice voting sort of opens up the field for third party candidates and also for independent or undeclared voters.
3: You often hear something along the lines of people voting very intensely along party lines. One of the slogans I hear is vote blue no matter what. A lot of the times that comes down to people not voting with their conscience, but voting with their political loyalty. Do you think ranked choice voting kind of alleviates that ethical concern?
2: I think it can, but I think it takes a little time for people to get engaged politically, right? Like it's not going to happen in one election cycle. But when you have candidates having to reach out to a broad base, broader base of voters, and also when you know you have a system like ranked choice voting in which if I'm a candidate, I'm going to need second choice votes. So if I'm knocking on your door and you say you prefer somebody else as your favorite choice, it doesn't benefit me to tell you that your favorite choice is the wrong choice and that you're mistaken and that they're a horrible person, right? Because I want your second choice vote. So instead of trash talking my opponent, On a personal basis, ranked choice voting really incentivizes candidates to find common ground with their opponents and say, listen, I understand that my opponent is your favorite, and that's fine. Let me tell you something that your favorite candidate and I have worked on together. We've done this. We agree on this. Can I count on your second choice vote? So it really helps build those coalitions and and build that consensus type of thinking, which I think, you know, it really engages those folks who might not be thinking about what the policies are, what the platforms are, and are just going to vote down the ballot for one party and that's it without ever learning anything about any of the candidates.
0: That was Maria Perez of Democracy in Action talking with The Conversations Harrison Patino about ranked choice voting. A heads up, Hawaii's Democratic primary will be held on April 4th and the deadline to register for the party is tomorrow. At heart, you understand why we don't believe you. You're way too easy to see through, not the best places to stop. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we hear how the Department of Land and Natural Resources is cracking down on illegal vacation rentals on conservation land, particularly on the Big Island. Do you have a story to share about this? Call our top back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HIConversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all our shows are archived. Find them on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.